0: Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. mobilecom Home and home. The more the merrier, or is it less is more? The NFL expanding the regular season, expanding the postseason, cutting down on the preseason. Do you like it? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Where do you stand on that? And it's 40 years since the miracle on ice. One of the legendary hockey players behind that miracle, the greatest upset in the history of sports, joins us later in the program. Saturday marks 40 years since the miracle. It is a Thursday Home and home. I'm Dave Briggs. On the road, it's a getaway day for me. Got my Broncos jacket on, getting ready to hit the road and leave Colorado and head back home to Connecticut. Ross Tucker joining us from Pennsylvania this morning. We will get into the New York football Giants, not the Broncos today. As we continue our All-32 look at all 32 teams' offseason burning questions A lot to discuss about this NFL, new CBA, the expansion of the regular, and the postseason. But Ross, really quick, and we'll delve more into this later in the program. It is a getaway day for me. Flying home happened to be in the last, second-to-last row of my airplane. Quickly, do I have to ask permission to recline, or do I just do it? Should I turn around and see if that person has long legs What's the protocol? And we'll discuss why I'm bringing this up later.
1: You absolutely do not have to ask. That is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. First of all, the person nine times out of 10, they'd be like, yeah, that's okay. And what happens if they say no? If you're asking, you clearly want to do it. So if they say no, I'd be like, ah, yeah, sorry, doing it anyway. Like, so then why'd you ask? And most of the time, they're just going to say yes because it's like someone asks you to do something. You're like, okay, you don't need to ask, bro. You just recline. They made the seats able to recline for a reason. And if that person doesn't like it, that's on them. They can also recline, although they're in the last row, so they can't. They probably should have done something ahead of time to make sure they weren't in the last row.
0: Now this of course brought up because the viral video a week ago of a guy reclining in the second to last door, I think it was actually a female and the passenger behind them banging on the chair repeatedly and and it just spread on social media. So maybe whatever I do, I will, I will film it for social media. So perhaps if I ask for permission, I will do it strictly for social media purposes. But to your point, If that person says, no, I have really no choice but to be a good dude and to try to be a good passenger. But if the person in front of me reclines, that's a game changer. If I suddenly cannot recline, that would be devastating. We'll play you uh, what the Delta Airlines CEO says about all of that later in the program. But right now, let's get into these massive changes coming your way to the NFL Preseason, regular season, postseason, everything as you know it will change. According to Adam Schefter's report, they will shorten one game from the preseason in the new collective bargaining agreement. They will lengthen the regular season from 16 to 17 games. Significant, of course, because you will no longer have that home road balance of 8-8. Eight and eight. It will be unbalanced unless they can find enough international games. But the real focus this morning and where we'll start is with the postseason changes, seven teams from each conference, playoff expansion, and only one team, the number one seed, gets that bye. So one fewer team with the buy in that first round. More playoff action in week one. Six wild card games. No surprise. I am the get off my yard, negative, grumpy old man. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Ross Tucker, here's what nobody said ever last season. You know what we really need? The Pittsburgh Steelers in the postseason at 8-8. You know what else nobody said last year? The mediocre L.A. Rams in the postseason. That's what we really need. We don't need to water down the playoffs and the competition level. I'm thrilled at the concept of my Broncos having a better chance to make the playoffs. But listen, man, no, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Why water down the accomplishment of making the playoffs? Rarely, if ever, are we saying we need one more team, an eight and eight, a nine and seven type team in the postseason. I hate it, but that's my role here, Ross.
1: Yeah, you are the negative Nancy of our show, and so I'm not surprised by that. i got to be honest with you. I think that you can make pretty good arguments either way. What I would say in response to what you just said is, number one, Steelers fans were saying that. Number two, Rams fans were saying that. And also, the fans of other teams... That were close to almost making it, they would have loved if there was a seventh opportunity in their conference. Then, by the way, there are years where you have a team like an 11 and 5 Patriots that didn't make it, that they would now get an opportunity that they probably do deserve. To your point about, you know what, nobody is saying, you know what, nobody will be saying come the first weekend in January, man, I am so mad that there are two more playoff games to watch this weekend. That sucks. I hate watching NFL playoff football. Nobody will be saying that either. And if you think about it, you know, when they first went to the 12 teams in the playoffs, there was only 28 teams in the league, right? So this is, before Jacksonville, before Carolina in the mid-90s, certainly before the Houston Texans. So when they first did this, there were 28 teams. 12 made the playoffs. That is 42.9%. Now there will be 14 out of 32. That's 43.8% it's really not that much of a difference. It's really not that big a deal compared to when they first went to 12 teams back in 1990. It's not that big a deal. So there are different ways to look at it, right? From a purely player standpoint, Dave, which is a perspective that I can provide. I love it. I I love it. What you have is four more teams so what is that? 12.5% four more teams have to play one more football game and we all get a shitload of money as a result. I'm, I'm down with that. All the guys, in the NFL, it's a huge influx of dollars to have those two more standalone games, wildcard weekend, huge influx of dollars that gets spread evenly throughout the salary cap for the players love it maybe. And we'll see the deal when it finally comes out. Maybe there's even some extra little cashola for former players. Nothing wrong with that in terms of the benefits. So from a player financial perspective, I love it from an NFL financial perspective. I love it. And what I feel like people on Twitter sometimes fail to realize Dave, like, this whole thing is just like a made up business, right? Like in the 20s, these guys thought, you know what? Maybe we can make money having paying guys to play football and having people pay to come see them play football. Like the whole thing is about money. So they're gonna constantly be trying to find different ways to increase the revenue because that's what every business does. Because that's what every business should do. So players' perspective, NFL perspective, we get all that. What I think is a good discussion, fan perspective, and you laid out the one argument, which is, is it ultimately a good thing for the fans? Because we know it is for the players in the league.
0: Well, yeah, there has been one player and that's Richard Sherman, who's been pushing back a little bit on the notion that this is all good news, but raising all boats, certainly it does that $5 billion estimated that it will spread across all the players. That's huge. But again, my chief concern is about the watering down of the postseason accomplishment. And here are the numbers to back that up. If you look at the last 10 years, if we use this playoff format this format would have added six eight-win teams over the last 10 years. Six teams that were 500. The definition of mediocrity. That is the definition of not a playoff team, not an excellent team. That's exactly what we should be trying to prevent. I understand it's a business, and it's all about money, but I just say and be careful what you wish for, If you start having more mediocre teams making the postseason, is that really great for the fans? It would also add nine, nine win teams over the last decade. So again, eight and nine win teams. Are those the types of teams that need to be in the playoffs? In my estimation, no. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And you are big time watering down what it means to make the postseason. But I also really don't like the idea of just one buy. And here's why. The last seven, the last seven Super Bowl champs have had a buy in the wild card round. So what does that tell you? Now that strictly that number one seed has so much Advantage and will really change things as we know it. I mean, let's look back on next season. There is one thing nobody, another thing nobody was saying is we don't want the Chiefs in the Super Bowl. Everybody wanted Kansas City in the Super Bowl. So, what if that team that everybody wants slips to the two seed, doesn't get the buy, has to play extra football, makes it that much more likely that the number one seed goes straight to the playoffs the last 10 years? So that's 20 teams in the Super Bowl. Only three teams made the Super Bowl in 10 years without a first-round bye. That's something they talked about on ninety-two-three, the fan in Pittsburgh. Let's listen as we fire up the radio.com red zone.
2: If you get the one seed, I think now it's, it's easier than ever before. And I know upsets happen in the NFL, and we saw it last year. We, saw, we, saw, we see upsets every single year. But the one seed now has a Titans pulled to me as a better off. shot. Yeah, they did. One seed has a better shot now, I think, because uh, not to mention if there <sighs> is if there are upsets, you still get the best seed, you know, as the one seed. You just wait for the worst team around. So even if like let's say let's say there is an upset and the seven beat seven seed beats the two seed, now you get to play the seventh seed uh, in that second round where before you would only play the, the sixth seed. I think it's easier with this setup than ever before to get to the Super Bowl.
0: I said 92-3, the fan that is uh, in Cleveland. We'll, we'll get to 93-7 in Pittsburgh in just a minute. But, Ross, what about that? We moved on from the watering down of the postseason accomplishment, which I hate. But you have to agree that this makes it that much more likely that the number one seed plays in the Super Bowl. How do you spend that as a positive?
1: Yeah, so I, I think that both the seven seed and the one seed, Dave, are really interesting, right? Because the seven seed for a second, okay? There will be years where it will make the end of the season more compelling because there's more teams that have a chance to get that seven or six seed. And I think that's good. But I also think there will be years, Dave, where it's like there's a cutoff and it's pretty clear that the seven seed and six seed, who they are, and that there's actually less drama at the end of the year. So I, I think that's going to depend on the year. In terms of the one seed, you know, I guess the positive is it'll make it even more important to be the number one seed. And teams will be fighting for that even more. What I don't like about it is it waters down the accomplishment or diminishes the accomplishment of the two seed, because now there's really not that much value in being the two seed. I kind of like Dave that it's like number one seed, a little bit of a gap, number two seed, a little bit of a gap and then three and four and then five and six. Right now it's like number one seed Huge gap, number two, three, four, and then number five, six, seven. I don't like that there's really no value in the two seed. That's what bothers me about it. Not that it makes the number one seed even more valuable. Um, My issue is the number one seed already was valuable. Now the number two seed isn't really shit number two seed is really not that much better than being number three and number four. So think about this year's playoffs, right? Like, think about the Chiefs. That two seed that they got when Fitzmagic beat the Patriots wouldn't be as valuable. There's really very little difference between being the two seed or the four seed, when typically the two seed is like badass 13-3 and three or whatever, like the Packers. And the four seed is nine and seven, like the Eagles. I don't like what it does to the two seed. That is the biggest negative I see in this new format. It diminishes the importance of the two seed. And so now that there's going to be, if there's an awesome team, that's clearly the number one seed. There's just not as much drama to see, well, who gets the other by who gets the other by? How about nobody? Cause there is no other by.
0: Right, and what if five years from now, we're not only looking at, again, the watered-down accomplishment. If every year we have an 8-8 and team in the postseason, that will suck. But what if five years from now, we've got five straight Super Bowls of number one seed versus number one seed? No one can tell me that won't harm the overall product of the NFL and lessen the drama and excitement of the postseason, which right now, right now is perfect. And if five years from now, you've just got number one seeds meeting in the Super Bowl, that is bad for everyone. So I'm just saying, pump the brakes a little bit on this excitement of just more is better for everyone. Maybe not. What about more regular season games? So now you've got 17 regular season games. And this is all a big if. If the players agree to this, if they get something beyond that $5 billion in extra cash, and maybe that is all they want, I hope. hopefully there is more benefits for retired players, as Ross Tucker mentioned. But what about the unbalance of the schedule now? It was eight home games, eight road games. Now what is it? Now are you Jacksonville? Is everyone playing an international game? They talked about that on 93.7 The Fan in Pittsburgh.
2: You know, fans have long complained, well, if I'm going to pay season ticket prices for 10 games, essentially, right? Because the two preseason games are a part of this. Well, wait a second. You want me to pay this now, but I'm only getting one preseason game, which I wasn't a big fan of anyway. Okay, whatever. And now I might only get, I might not get any additional home games. And I can't imagine ticket prices are going to drop anywhere. I mean, even the Browns are raising ticket prices, for God's sake. So, If you're a fan, especially a season ticket holder, and again, this is a fraction of the revenue the TV creates, but still, it's revenue if you're an owner. How do the fans react to, I don't know, maybe there's only eight home games in a given year. Or saying, hey, you know what, we're playing? Yeah, we're playing the Eagles in Cairo. Let's go. You know, like, that's, this is going, I I think there's going to be Mexico City games, there's going to be Toronto games. There's going to be London games and a bunch of them. There may be even non-traditional sites within our country. You may oh. play games at you may play games in Madison, Wisconsin, in Happy Valley. You may play games. Buccaneers at, Dolphins in Orlando. Correct. Yeah. Correct. That kind of stuff. And 93
0: 7 the fan in Pittsburgh. No team in football over the last ten years, if we had this format, would benefit more than the Pittsburgh Steelers. They tend to be that team that is right on the cut line and now would be in the postseason, including last year's mediocre 8-18. and But what about that imbalance of the schedule, Ross? How will that work out? And is it just about finding that many international games, which, as we've seen, ain't always a good thing?
1: Yeah, so that's going to be... Those details have not come out yet. I have to imagine that every team will play one neutral site game. Have to imagine that. So I also don't know how they handle the imbalance of three preseason games and who gets to play two at home versus two on the road. It's not that big a deal, but it is an issue from a season ticket holder standpoint. You know, it's interesting, Dave, because right now, Everything is so darn perfect. 32 teams, eight divisions, four teams in each division, four preseason, 16 regular season. It's, like, so smooth. It's like butter. I mean, it is perfect. Every, like, you know, the way they have the rotation of who plays who, it's formulaic. There is no... Um, well, this team could play this team. No, we know what the schedule is every year. I love that part of it. I'm a detail-oriented guy. I like things organized, so I love that part of it. I do, though, also love the idea of every team playing one neutral site game and nobody losing a home regular season game. It's not fair to the teams that lose home regular season games. And now that the Raiders, Chargers, and Rams are all going to have beautiful new stadiums, nobody's really going to be volunteering to give up a home game to go to London other than the Jags. Nobody's going to want to do that. So now you won't have to do that. I am curious to see what the neutral site locations will be, though, because there's a lot that goes into making a stadium – fitted for an NFL game, you know, being able to handle an NFL game a lot more than people think. Uh, as a guy, by the way, that does preseason games on TV, not thrilled with that because, A, I like the money you do in the preseason games, but, B, I still think the preseason games are very valuable, especially if the XFL goes away. You know, those guys need a chance to show what they can do. And even if the starters don't play that much, think about the Philadelphia Eagles and knowing that they should keep Greg Ward and Boston Scott and these guys based on the preseason games. And then late in the season, those are the guys making plays to get them a division championship and into the playoffs. I, I, I've I've never been a fan of less preseason games. I totally understand why people don't love watching them, but It's not a negative for the players. The starters don't play anyway. It's good for the coaches and for the younger players to be able to see who can play and who can't. And now there will be one less opportunity to do so. So not a huge fan of that. And then you look at the calendar, Dave, and when do they do it? They're not going to start the regular season, Labor Day weekend. They're not going to do that. So what happens is, The preseason games will start a week later. The NFL regular season will end a week later. It's not like it'll end at the same time. And then is there another buy so they can push the Super Bowl to President's Day weekend? I mean, what are we talking about here?
0: That is the big question, and there are a lot of details still to come out on that. Yes, you would presumably think it would add an extra bye week and push that Super Bowl more towards a holiday. Um, That's always made sense. We've always hoped the Super Bowl. That may be my favorite benefit of this new system if, in fact, that's how it plays out Get that Super Bowl somewhere near a holiday so we prevent that dysfunctional Monday, Super Monday, as we discussed here on the program. So, a lot of details still to come out on this, but the players aren't really fighting it at all. They are certainly not complaining about less preseason. I mentioned Richard Sherman's uh, complaints on Twitter. He's the only player at this point I've really found. So, You've got more regular season games, more postseason games, and next season you're going to have more guys coming back for yet another round of football despite their age and despite the pounding it takes on their heads. And you would expect players to start talking about head injuries, about CTE, and how this might impact that because you add more football. Case in point, you've got Adrian Peterson. The ageless wonder Redskins running back. He'll be back on the field next season now at 35 years old. Greg Olson, the legendary Panthers tight end, will be back on the football field next season, signing a one-year deal with the Seahawks. Are you surprised, Ross, given what we saw with the Panthers and Luke Kuechly, arguably the best linebacker over the last decade, that you've got these two guys, and Olson in particular, who's been offered... From what we understand, seven-figure deals to get in the broadcast booth. Are you surprised to see these guys continue to come back for more, given all that we know about head injuries?
1: Well, I'm not surprised at all about Adrian Peterson. And I say that because he's evidently had major financial issues. Uh, Dave, I, I, he's lost a lot of money for various reasons. So I think he's going to play as long as he possibly can. I also don't know offhand, you know what he'll get into after he's done playing football, and how lucrative that would be. I don't know that. Greg Olson's a little bit different to me. Greg Olson has already made sixty-three million dollars, and this is another seven. Maybe he wants to get to 70 million, but he's already made $63 million. And he has a job making at least a million, probably more, waiting for him as a broadcaster. So I can tell you that I'd like to think that I probably personally would not make the decision that Greg Olson's making, right? Let's flesh this out: 63 million. Let's say he's got less than half in, in the bank. Let's say he's got $30 million or even just $25 million. And from the Seahawks, let's say he hits all the incentives and he gets $7 million to play football this season. And he could get, I don't know, $2 million to be a broadcaster, which is a lot, but evidently there's a lot of interest in his services. So that's a $5 million difference. After taxes, probably a $2.5 million difference. I guess I wonder, if you have $30 million, how much of a difference does $2.5 million really make in your life at that point? Whereas a serious injury and or more hits to the head could make a big difference in your life. So I'm not sure that I would make the same decision that Greg Olson had, but I understand a couple of things. One is two and a half million dollars is two and a half million dollars in your bank account. It's a lot of money. Number one, number two, he loves football, and wants to keep playing and whatever the risks are, he's already been taking those risks for 13 years. So I think in his mind, like the CTE part of it, it's like, dude, uh, you know, that ship has sailed, right? Like, I'm either going to get it and have it or I'm not or whatever. I don't know that one more year of playing is going to make a difference on the CT end of it. And, yes, there are concerns orthopedically, but that is what it is. My body's already beat the shit. You know, one more shoulder surgery or knee surgery, yep. if that happens on the negative yep. side, of it, isn't the end of the world.
0: And that's where I come down on it. Adrian Peterson can still do it. 898 yards last year. He can still do it. Three more million dollars is going to make a big difference. And Greg Olson has his shot at a Super Bowl as long as Russell Wilson's his quarterback. So me, when I put it in my terms, in terms of broadcasting, look, it's all I know how to do. It's all Greg Olson and Adrian Peterson know how to do. And if you are still offered big money to do it. I can't imagine in any scenario saying no to that. Now, to wrap this conversation up, if I'm NASCAR driver Ryan Newman, who we saw get in that devastating crash at the Daytona 500 at the finish line, go airborne, go into the wall, and there were fears that he was killed in that accident, if I'm Ryan Newman, and the pictures came out yesterday of him being released from the hospital walking out of that hospital with his two young daughters. If I'm him, it is a far different story. I am never getting back in a NASCAR and that's despite the fact that those cars are safer than ever. It's miraculous how he's walked away from this just fine, but it should be a reminder how life is short if you are, in fact, Ryan Newman, and you've seen now that terrifying video of him getting in that crash. So let us know how you feel about those stories. Would you come back for more if you're Olsen, if you're AP, or if you are Ryan Newman? And also, weigh in on our poll question. Do you like the NFL adding two more playoff teams? 57% of you at RDC Home and Home say no. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. I am with you, folks. I don't like it, but I'm the grumpy old man here on the program. Quick break, and when we come back, it is 40 years on Saturday since Miracle on Ice is it the greatest upset of all time we'll talk to Jack O'Callaghan, but up next Jared Diamond from the Wall Street Journal talks about Rob Manfred's handling disastrous handling of the Astros sign stealing cheating scandal and how he handled Jared Diamond you don't want to miss that
1: after a break Are you tired of that 230 feeling Dave Briggs you're not alone In fact, research shows that more than 70% of us hit the wall after lunch and most people can't take naps like I do some days. Let a five-hour energy shot help you leap over that wall instead of crashing into it. Five-hour energy helps you get through your crazy on-the-go life. With zero sugar, four calories, and a convenient portable size, it's the perfect pick-me-up for busy, hardworking people like dave briggs now it comes in two great extra strength tropical tastes strawberry banana and tropical burst they are delicious and can take you to a tropical on-the-go experience five-hour energy shot can help you stay alert energized wherever you may be headed
2: jared diamond with the wall street journal you've talked a lot about wanting to gather all the facts Yet there was a good amount of information that seems like you uncovered that was not in the report you released publicly, specifically about involvement of members of the Astros front office, some of whom still work for the Astros. I'm wondering why some of that stuff was not included what you released publicly. Well, um, first of all, I think that it's important, um, you know, congratulations, you got a private letter that, you know, I sent to a club official. Nice reporting on your part.
1: That is the voice of Rob Manfred, the commissioner of Major League Baseball. And he was talking with our next guest, Jared Diamond of the Wall Street Journal, of course, about the Astros. So let's just start with this, Jared. It, it certainly sounds like it. But you were the one that was actually there. Is it fair to say that Manfred was being sarcastic and snarky with him complimenting you for your reporting?
3: Look, I think it's fair to say that that Rob and Major League Baseball wasn't thrilled with the story that I wrote. It was, as Rob said, as you heard him say, it was based on private correspondence that was not meant to be public, so I think it's fair to say it was embarrassing for baseball that it got out. They certainly didn't want it to get out the way that it did. Now, was Rob taking a shot at me? I know a lot of people think he was. I don't know. My relationship with Rob is fine. I ta- I've i talked to him since. He he says he was just joking and wasn't trying to, you know, to be rude, so I'll take him at his word. But, but I understand why people who heard that clip uh, kind of took it the way they did and the reality is I know for sure that Rob and Major League Baseball would have been much happier if the stories I've been writing have not were not put out into the world
1: yeah I mean uh, of course I guess what I don't understand Jared is to me some of the things that Manfred's done lately have been so concerning like to have the lack of awareness to call the World Series trophy a piece of metal, and then Mm -hmm. to have the lack of awareness in front of a group of media, when you are explaining maybe the most serious baseball issue in years, and to use that time to be snarky or sarcastic to you. Like, is this guy just oblivious to what's going on in the world? I, I just can't believe that he thought it was a good idea to kind of be sarcastic to you for your reporting.
3: I'm sure he didn't think it was a good idea in hindsight. Look, he's a person. He was annoyed. He said what he said. It is what it is. The reality is his comments about the trophy, which he has apologized for, by the way, was an unforced error. There's no question about it. That was a big mistake by Rob Manfred. He did not seem to recognize how, that comment was going to be perceived. Uh, and based on what he said the other day, it sounds like he certainly understands that that comment about the trophy was regrettable, and I think he, he seems to regret it. But it was sort of just another uh, example of what has been a long line of unforced errors both by MLB and even more by the Astros that has sort of turned what is an already big story into something even bigger.
1: How did it make you feel when you're amongst all these other media folks and he sort of calls you out like that?
3: Uh, As a journalist, I think it means that you're doing your job, right? If you're you're getting under somebody's skin, it probably means you're doing something right. Uh, Obviously, he had no comments about the nature of the reporting. Uh, The reporting was all right, and I'm, you know, look, I'm sorry, I don't ever want uh, conversations to get turned that way, but it's my job to put out these stories, and I'm comfortable that I've been doing my job. And frankly, I think Rob Manfred in Major League Baseball wouldn't disagree with that.
1: Talking with Jared Diamond of the Wall Street Journal covers Major League Baseball. He is the one that broke the news of the letter from Rob Manfred to the Astros. And for people that aren't as familiar, Jared, can you dive into the contents of the letter? I know you touched on it, but the nitty-gritty of the contents of the letter and why it was so important and such a bad look for baseball.
3: So this was a letter that Rob Manfred sent to Jeff Lunau in early January, uh, just about a little over a week before the public report. Out that we've all read that uh, outlined the punishment for Jeff Juno and, and all these other folks. Uh, and this letter, it included a whole bunch of accusations and, and things that they un- uncovered in their investigation, uh, much, much of which was not put out in baseball's public report on that information about members of the front office and their role in the sign stealing scheme. And in fact, even had some accusations about the potential of Jeff Luna knowing uh, about the Astros sign stealing scheme in some capacity. Uh, it didn't. A lot of this didn't come out in the public report, which is why the letter was such a big deal when it became public. Uh, because a lot of people, including players and fans, started wondering: Hey, uh, if this wasn't in that report, uh, is there anything else that Bob Manfred and Major League Baseball aren't telling us?
1: Jared, you know, I know you report, but I'm going to ask for your opinion now. And the opinion is, what do you think should have been done with the Houston Astros and or could maybe even still be done, whether it comes to taking away the title, punishing the players? If Manfred had asked for your opinion and your advice, what would you have said?
3: Man, I'd say I'm really sorry you're in this position because you're in an absolutely brutal spot. And I really do feel that way. For everything people want to say about Rob Manfred, I truly believe he was in an incredibly difficult position here. Uh, the reality is, in spite of whatever people want to say, fans want to say, there was no mechanism by which Rob Manfred could have suspended Astros players. It never could have happened. And this idea of the players' immunity... Uh, is true, but it's also misleading. He gave them immunity in large part because he couldn't have suspended them. Their suspensions never would have held up uh, in an because there were no rules that were codified about how player discipline would work in this situation. I happen personally
1: to agree with Jared Diamond. I don't know how you discipline the players. I've said that throughout. How do you know how intimately each guy was involved What is the game amount? And by the way, I've said it before. I'll say it again. I think some of those guys would rather be suspended for some amount of time than face the wrath of what they are going to face coming up this season, especially early in the season. I think a suspension would almost let those guys on some level off the hook from the venom they're going to face from Major League Baseball fans early this season. Great stuff there with Jared Diamond from the Wall Street Journal. Appreciate his time. Do you know it's 40 years since the miracle on ice? We're going to go from something very negative, the Astros scandal, to something very positive, the United States beating the Soviet Union in hockey in 1980. When we return here to Home and Home, a Radio.com Sports Original. All right, Saturday
0: marks 40 years from the miracle on ice, arguably the greatest upset in the history of sports and one of the greatest moments of all time in sport we have ever experienced. I'm Dave Briggs on a Thursday Home and Home. I'm in Colorado, Ross Tucker, back in Pennsylvania, joining us. One of the members of the Miracle on Ice team, Jack O'Callaghan, as they prepare to celebrate the accomplishment. Jack, thanks so much for coming on the program. It's Dave Briggs and it's Ross Tucker. I know you dropped the puck at the Blackhawks game. Yep. Awesome to see that. Uh, are you shocked at how increasingly relevant that accomplishment was 40 years ago, how it remains such a relevant moment 40 years later?
2: Yeah, I I don't know if I'm shocked. It is pretty – it's pretty great. It's been 40 years of fun conversations and uh, means a lot to people. Yeah, I don't know, man. It's been – it's, you know, the movie sort of re-energized the whole thing. But, um, yeah, it made people feel good 40 years ago. It still makes people feel good. So, I mean, that's the real – the key to it. I don't think anybody remembers who passed the puck to who or who scored what. I mean, Arizioni's goal obviously is memorable. But other than that, I mean, the game's kind of – you know, they all mix together, but uh, the memory and the feelings that really, uh, I, think, I think, what has prolonged the discussion.
1: Jack, does it feel like it's been 40 years or not at all?
2: Well, take a look at me, man. You think it's been 40 years? I look, I look in the mirror, it feels like 40 years. I'll tell you that much. And when I get up out of bed in the morning, my back's a little achy. Yeah, it feels like 40 <laughs> years. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. You know how it is it's like you still feel like you're 15 years old but you're 62 now so things change and um nobody's getting any younger when everybody's got grandkids now and uh yeah i don't know man or it is what it is (laughs) it's been fun though.
0: (laughs) absolutely let's go back and let's just remember what that moment sounded like here is the iconic call from 40 years ago saturday
1: 11 seconds you've got 10 seconds
2: Five seconds to the gold medal. Four to the gold medal. This impossible dream comes true.
0: All right, Jack O'Callaghan back with us. Jack, take me back, not just to that moment, to the beating of the Russians, and just tell me, share with us a little bit of what the emotions were like at the moment when you realized this actually happened.
2: Yeah. I don't know. It was kind of surreal, unreal, crazy. We were playing the Russians. Felt like we had them, though, for the last minute or two, you know. It felt like they were doing things that were out of character. They were dumping the puck in. They were spinning their wheels a little bit. We were more in control. We were fit. We were emotionally, you know, on fire. Uh, Yeah, I mean, the last minute or so, I don't know. You know, they were kind of buzzing around a little bit, but they really couldn't get in our zone for any sustained pressure. They would kind of dump it in. We'd get it, Fire it back out. They were kind of spinning around center ice. It was kind of fun to watch, actually. Um,
3: yeah, and then when it was over, I don't know. It,
2: it, was, it was just unbelievable because uh, I can't really remember everything that happened. Uh, I kind of remember how I felt, I guess. I was just like so jacked up. You know, it came off the bench. I mean, I tackled Mike Ramsey. We're looking at each other. I put my arms in the air. I'm like, you know. <laughs> And it was just, everybody was going kind of crazy. It was pretty awesome. I mean, it was almost like when we won the gold medal against Finland, it, was so, it wasn't It was nearly as high of a emotional kind of explosion uh, as the Russian game. The Finnish game, you know, on Sunday morning was a little freaky. It was almost like it was a sense of relief when that was over because we could have screwed that thing up. And who knows, you know, we wouldn't be having this conversation. But um, so there was a sense of relief when we beat Finland. And it was just a sense of just pure elation and kind of joy and uh, yeah, emotion overflow when we beat the Russians for sure.
1: All right, so Jack, I was born in '79, so obviously you know I've, I've seen the videos and the movies and stuff, but wasn't wasn't able to really watch it live. Was it really that much of an upset? And like, why was why was it that much of an upset? Like, if you played them a hundred times. How many yeah. times did Russia win? How many times did U.S. win? Well, I mean, a hundred times is a lot. I don't know. We probably, I mean,
2: I don't, I don't know, man. They were. It's hard to say. They could have beaten us a hundred times. I mean, I don't even know. I can't even believe we beat them once. <laughs> um, I don't know. The upset. You know, we were pretty. We were a good team. We had really good players, and we were really well coached. We were really fit. Um, you know, we were really good. We had. I mean, guys played next 10 years, played in the NHL, you know, had good careers. Um, but, you know, they were the Russians, man. They beat everybody. You know, they, they beat the best players in the NHL. And uh, the only way the NHL could even compete with them was if they had local refs that favored the NHL guys. And then the NHL guys basically would break their sticks over their ankles and arms and there was no penalty. So that's how the NHL stayed with these guys. I mean, if you tried to play them, just skate with them. Nobody could beat them, and they were all, like, big, strong dudes, you know, six, like, built, like, they were like big bears, man, and you're trying to play against these guys. (laughs) It was pretty hard, you know. We were all 20, 20, early 20s. These guys were mid, late 20s. They were grown ups. We were, like, kind of kids. We just had a lot of belief, and we had a lot of emotion, and we were really fit, and like I said, we were pretty talented, and when Herbie picked the team, you know, he picked, like... Leaders of, of their college teams, captains and, and and champions, guys that have won NCAA championships, and so you know we had, we had there was no quit in us, that's for sure. And we after they beat us ten to three, we were kind of a little aggravated about it. So you know we kind of buckled down and paid attention. And I don't know, we knew we had to be close going into the third. We were only down a goal, that's like being up up a couple against those guys. So you know yeah. we only had twenty minutes to play and get great goaltending, obviously. And um, yeah. Just kind of outlasted them. And then, you know, we got a couple timely goals. I mean, rizioni, I played with him for a couple of years in college. I mean, the guy could score from anywhere. You know, I when he scored that goal, I was like, yeah. not even surprised because he, he, I mean, he'd take these shots, like, from the corner. would hit somebody in the, in the, you know, in the butt, you know, ricochet in the net. And he'd be like, yeah, whatever. You know, that's how I score goals. So, yeah. I wasn't surprised when Mike scored, like, you know, kind of off the, you know, he grabs it, he's in the middle of the ice, he's off the wrong foot, he fires it, it kind of snakes through, this, that, and the other thing, it's in the net. I'm like, everybody was going, oh, you believe that shot? I was like, yeah, I do, actually. (laughs) I've seen it a million times.
0: Jack O'Callaghan with us, member of the Miracle on Ice team 40 years ago Saturday. uh, The Soviet Union had won gold in the previous four Olympic Games and had won 16 world championships from 61 to 79 arguably the most dominant run we've ever seen in any sport. Um, Jack, what's the biggest misconception about either the run or the chemistry or coach um, that that, that you've seen play out either in that movie or just through stories over the years?
2: The biggest misconception? Uh... Yeah, what would
0: surprise people the most? What was the most inaccurate thing, whether it was be in that movie or just through stories over the years?
2: Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure. You know, the movie was pretty good. I mean, it, it kind of, it, in a two-hour time frame, it, it sort of it tried to explain what happened over nine or ten months, right? Or even, you could say, over two years. Um, so they had to condense stuff. You know, they kind of focused on the rift between the eastern guys and the western guys. Um, you know, there were only four of us from New England, and everybody else was from the Midwest. So, um, you know, think about it. I mean, if it wasn't for us, all those guys would have been talking about was ice fishing and, like, cow tipping. Think about that. So, you know, we actually brought a little kind of, you know, I don't know, like kind of urban pizzazz to that team. Right. So um, we did have a very close knit group. Um, All that rivalry stuff had kind of, you know, kind of disappeared. I don't know, a year or so prior. Um, And by the time we got together, we actually became really good friends. You know, we were we would cross pollinate with each other. We would hang out. We would go out here and there. You know, some guys had their girlfriends living with them and this and that. And, you know, Kenny Morrow got married real early. So, you know, some guys were kind of under the thumb a little bit. So you didn't see a lot of those guys after practice or some stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, you know, we hung out a lot. We, we, You know, we were buddies. I I think that's probably misstated that there was this rift on the team. There really wasn't. Um, You know, there there was prior, years prior. But by the time we got around to the Olympics, we were all kind of one unit. And we're still to this day pretty good buddies, you know. Like we're gonna have fun in Las Vegas uh, next couple of days. You know, guys will be kind of razzing each other here and there, just little, you know, stuff. But you know, guys, I mean, it's a bunch of guys that really kind of care about each other. So it's it's a you know, pretty good uh, pretty good group of group of people.
1: All right, so Jack, how much of all of the attention you guys get and the, and the importance of the game, like how much of it is? Wow, that was an amazing upset. And how much of it is, like, this is the middle of the Cold War and the U.S. beat the Russia. U.S. beat Russian, you know. So how much of it is the game itself and the upset? How much of it is sort of the uh, political climate, if you will?
2: Well, I mean, for us, right, it was just a game. I mean, we were playing, you know, we went to Lake Placid to play the Sweden. And we tied them. So, all right, now I'm going to play the Czechs. You know, we beat them. Now it's like kind of boom, boom, right? We kind of rolled forward. Um, playing the Russians for us. I mean, we weren't thinking, you know, we got to go beat these guys to, like, you know, stand up for the USA show that we're patriots. We were like, we just got to try to beat these guys and play hockey against them. It was the same thing with the Finland group. But, I mean, we all knew what was going on in the world. I mean, you couldn't be – you couldn't live in that era without knowing what was going on. You know, like gas lines and, you know, hostages, you know, in Iran. That that was horrible, right? And then – you know, you had the Russians in Afghanistan, you had Carter, you know, I don't know what he was doing, right? But he was, we're not going to Moscow and all this, right? So we're not coming to the Olympics. I mean, that was his response to the Russians invading Afghanistan. And so, you know, you knew what was going on in the the world, right? I mean, we were all college guys, you know, we took history classes, and we took, you know, that kind of stuff. And we read the newspapers, but in Lake Placid, you know, we were just playing hockey, right? And we started to but, I mean, the rest of the country was, look, the Cold War was going on. You know, if they said to you, like, one day, hey, you got a, an air raid siren outside. You know, it's like, get to a bomb shelter, right? You wouldn't have been surprised because there were bomb shelters everywhere. You know, you never knew when the nuclear bomb was coming, right? So that was always in the back of your mind. I mean, it's how we lived in the 70s. And, and um, you know, but once we got to Lake Placid, man, we were just playing hockey. It's just the rest of the country. It, it, it had a much bigger meaning than it did um, for us as hockey players. And, and uh, for the rest of the country, it was like the U.S. against the Russians. And the hell with the Russians, you know, we'll show them. And they kind of lived through us as players. And that's what we've kind of been experiencing for the past 40 years. You know, it hasn't been, wow, hey, Jack, nice pass to McClanahan or whatever on that one goal or something. It's really been like, wow, the way we felt watching that and, and even in the movie, like the way it makes me feel now, uh, they just have to share that experience with us. And it's been, been for, it's been fantastic. I'll tell you, it's been like uh, 40 years of smiles and great conversations. It's really been great. Yeah. I never had a bad just, conversation. I've never said to me, you know, Jack, that thing uh, you guys did. In 1980 was so overrated. And it's like we think <laughs> never, ever have I had that conversation.
0: Uh, Jack O'Callaghan with us. Quickly, before we uh, let you get back to life, what was it like as a young, single college kid who was relatively anonymous before that game coming home? What was that like for a young, single college kid to be that type of celebrity coming back home?
2: Uh, Well, you know, I, I was pretty... You know, my college team in Boston was really good at Boston University, right? So even back in the 78, 76, 77, 70. We used to get in '78. We got more press than the Bruins and the Celtics, like in college. So I kind of, I kind of had a sense of, you know, I mean, I, and I was the captain of the team, so I was always like getting quoted and interviewed and all that nonsense. And um, so, I mean, I had kind of sense of it. And Then we won the gold medal. It was like, wow, this is even more fun, you know. I mean, I got to Chris in a 12 meter yacht uh, down in Newport one day, and uh, you know, got to do some fun stuff like that because I wasn't playing, you know, from like February to. After the Olympics, I couldn't play because of my knee. So, I mean, until whatever, until training camp, I was just kind of bouncing around, getting ready for camp. But then, you know, I went to camp in September, and uh, I played really well. I thought I should have made the team, but, of course, you know, I was an American kid and, you know, whatever, pro hockey. It's like you don't know what you don't know when you're trying out for a team. And they sent me to Moncton, New Brunswick, and I spent two years in Moncton, New Brunswick. So the gold medal didn't mean mean much up there. I was living in Canada. They don't really care. Oh. They're like, yeah, well, like, <laughs> they them, nobody cares, Jack. You know, so um, yeah, that was a bit of a, you know, kind of kept me back in place. And I was pretty, always pretty good to keep my ego in check, anyway. But uh, yeah, living in Canada, uh, you know, it, kept me... <laughs> it was a little different up there. Anyway, I
0: would imagine, but I would imagine it didn't hurt at the Boston bars as a young college student. Jack O'Callaghan yeah, with us celebrating 40 years since the Miracle on Ice. They will mark that anniversary on Saturday. All 18 of them will be together. Jack, so uh, great to stroll back down memory lane. We appreciate the time.
2: Thanks, guys. Really good. Really enjoyed talking to you. All right. Have fun. See ya.
1: You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor.
0: You are a fighter. medella is your reward. medella the mark of a fighter. Trick responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. Speaking of strolling down memory lane, what we do here every day here on Home and Home is we expand on Ask Reddit, which is where arguably the most intriguing questions in the country and on the planet are discussed each and every day. And today's Answer Reddit here on Home and Home is a stroll down memory lane. And it's this question. What would you like to have had in high school that kids have today? So, Ross Tucker, there's so many ideas out there. Obviously, social media, iPhones, hell, just the the Internet today, so many ideas, so many concepts, so many things to choose from. What do you wish that you had in high school that the kids have today?
1: So this is very easy for me, although I wonder if I can separate it out. Um, and the answer is, I wish we had the ability to text message. So it's weird, Dave. I don't really need all the social media I don't really need – it's almost like I wish we had the phones that we had in 2003, 2004, in 1994, 95, and 96. I don't need the great ability to take videos or pictures. That probably would not have been a good idea. I don't need all the social media, but just the ability – to text message because of two things, Dave. One is that back then, all we had was home phones. So I was typically playing a sport. A lot of my friends were not. And so it was very difficult to know where they were after my game was over because they're having a party somewhere, but they were going to tell their parents where the party was. So I had to like drive around and try to find their cars. That was a pain in the ass. It would have been so nice to be able to text them and say, where are you guys? Then there are certain uh, reasons in terms of the ladies and dating for which I think text messaging could have been very helpful. And I'll probably just leave it at that. This is a family show. (laughs)
0: Yeah, yeah. You got a safe bet to leave it at that. Yeah. I mean, when I first thought of this, I thought, oh, social media. But then I let that marinate for about two minutes and realized I would want no fucking part of social media. No, no. None whatsoever. I wouldn't want YouTube either. I'm not sure I would be here today still broadcasting if some of my early mistakes were broadcast on YouTube. I probably wouldn't have survived it. Cell phones, not necessarily. That's too much connectivity and availability for me. I really would have enjoyed the simple pleasure of Google because, again, it is a family show. Nah, hell, it's not. I'll just be honest here. TMI is on your way, Ross. Too much information. I would have benefited from the education you can get on Google about uh, things you're exploring as a young teenager. My that, parents, Ross.
1: I, my, I, I Keep going. This is awesome. You're right about my, this. Keep going.
0: My parents, and I've never, want, never known why, I haven't asked them, never had the talk with me. They never had the birds and bees talk with me. One day I went into my bathroom and there were just condoms in the drawer. And I looked at my older brother and said, what, what, where'd these come from? And he said, I don't know. I guess mom and dad, I never really had an outlet to learn about those extracurricular activities with the ladies. And I really would have enjoyed that type of information available at my fingertips. I think I would have enjoyed high school a lot more. There was a lot of opportunity.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I think, um, you know, on the one hand, if I would have been more knowledgeable about certain things, then um, I think it would have been... Man, this is tough. I think I could have been um, more productive, Uh, I guess would be one way to describe it. On the other hand... um, I still would have rather just had the ability to text because for the most part, yeah, I'm not going to say what I was going to say. I don't know what to say for the most part, man, things for the most part, I got what I wanted out of it. And, um, you know, let's put it this way. The knowledge that I would have gained would have been, more useful for the girls I was dating than it was for me, if that makes sense. They, yes. they, they probably really wish that I had Google <laughs> back then. Yes. That I, didn't, exactly. I didn't need, I didn't, but for me personally, the Google part of it was not as important. The text messaging That would have been important.
0: Okay. I don't know why you're suddenly clamming up. Can you just be upfront and not, what are you holding back on us about what text messaging would add to your life? Come on, Ross, we won't, it's a a very,
1: it's a very effective mechanism to put a lot of um, lines in the water, right? Like pretend like you're fishing, Texting is a very timely, efficient to put multiple lines in the water at one time, as opposed to just going to some party and having one line in you could I could have had lots of lines in high school and college, lots of lines in and decide which was the biggest fish.
0: This is a good point. There, there, it would be easier to cast, but then it's also easier for people to track you down. And I don't think I would have ever been comfortable with, um, the photos that kids text today. No, and thank no, I'm God. saying,
1: Where's I'm that? saying early, early 2000 cell phone, you can text, but your phones really can't take pictures or if they do okay. it's shitty. Like I specifically don't want the pictures. no no pictures. Don't need that. I got my memories and they're golden.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I I think we've come down on exactly how this would improve our lives. I needed the information and look, it sounds a little selfish of you, Ross Tucker, to say that only, you know, I mean, look, you, I think you would have benefited too from more information from nor more technique from more education, courtesy, a, A Google search but I don't know that that would have really helped my social life I didn't need to know where the party was cuz Ross come on where I was was the party so I didn't need to know where everyone else was after sports they were all just waiting for me to start the party but here are the top answers on reddit from I think for young kids, an environment in which being smart is a good thing and nerdy is not a bad thing. That is very true. Nerds are pretty cool today. Back then, it was a torturous environment for them. And being smart wasn't necessarily give you any street cred. Uh, The internet, that's an obvious one. MP3 players, Spotify and the like, eh, that's not even among my top five. Not a music guy. I don't think that would have changed my life a whole lot.
1: No, and so I'm going to tell you something. I've never said on the airwaves, okay? This was seventh or eighth grade. And my locker, the guy who had the locker next to me, who, by the way, was an absolute stud athlete, went to Syracuse on a soccer scholarship. He was talking about something, and he said it looked like something that, rhymes with whiz like cheese whiz okay he said something looked like whiz use your yes. imagination I'm with and you. I, I got said, it I said what is that cheese he goes no the thing that rhymes with whiz I said cheese he said no <laughs> the thing that rhymes with whiz I'm like what is the thing that rhymes with whiz he said, you know, like, come over here, Teresa, come over here. So there you go. By the way, it was Matt Torak and Teresa Williams. So I say to Teresa Williams, a girl next to, on the other side, I say, what is the thing that rhymes with whiz? She starts laughing and says, <laughs> oh, Ross. So I get home from school that day, okay? And I say to my mom, Dave, I'm in seventh or eighth grade. I say to my mom, mom, what is the thing that starts with a J that rhymes with whiz? And my mom had no idea. My mom's like, I don't know. I've never heard that before. I'm like, you've never heard of rhymes with whiz starts with a J. She said, no. I said, well, (laughs) They also said they also called it, "Come over here, Mom, you know, So that's the way I'm saying the other one that I don't want to say on the radio, right? And my yeah. mom said, my mom said, "My sister's four years older than me. My mom said, "Ask your sister," and walked out of the room immediately. <laughs> Ask your sister," and walked out of the room immediately. So then my sister gets home that night. And I think I might have been in eighth grade and my sister was a senior and my sister gets home that night and I think I ask her at the dinner table because I still don't know. I still don't know. And my sister says, I'll tell you after dinner. And then after dinner, she says, it's semen. And I said, why wouldn't anybody just say that word? Why wouldn't anyone just tell me? I know what that is. And she's like, well, that's what it is. And I remember thinking, what good is an older sister if I'm at school in eighth grade, okay, wanting to know if the thing that rhymes with whiz is cheese and not (laughs) knowing what it was and then having to ask my mom and be like – Good looking out, Bryn, my sister, I'm going to see this weekend skiing. Yeah. Good looking out.
0: <laughs> I will never be able to unsee that story because Cheese Whiz will never look the same to me again. I will never be able to touch Cheese Whiz again. You've, you've ruined it for me, but that was a great example of where Google sure would have helped a young yes. Tucker. Yes. uh, (laughs) Our answer Reddit question of the day. Ross's answer is text messaging. Mine is Google searches would have made our dating lives and our conversations a lot easier. All right, we're gonna take a quick break here, and when we come back, we're gonna dive into our all 32 look at all 32 NFL teams off season burning questions, staying in the NFC East, and the New York Giants are up next. And Nick Costos, some you better, you bet will weigh in on where the Giants are headed under the new head coach.
1: Hey everybody, it's Ross Tucker. Thanks for listening to the Home at Home podcast. Remember, you can watch or listen live every day from 8.30 to 10.30 a.m. Eastern Time exclusively on the Radio.com app or on the web at Radio.com slash home. Home and home. T-Mobile has invested
2: billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours